0: What are the opportunities and challenges that arise from multilingual cultures within the academy? About this and many other important topics is this conversation with Catalina Dionís in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojkowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif al-Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am delighted to have with us today, Catalina Dionis. Catalina is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication, Environmental Communication and Social Justice at the University of Colorado, Denver. Previously, she was an assistant professor at Willamette University. Catalina did her BS at Northwestern University in the Medill School of Journalism. Uh, Subsequently, she completed a master's in the Department of Communication Studies at the University of Montana and her PhD in the Department of Communication and Culture at Indiana University. She is the author of three books, most recently, Energy Islands, Metaphors of Power, Extractivism and Justice in Puerto Rico, which was published by the University of California Press last year and already received an award in environmental communication. She's also a documentary filmmaker um, with uh, the title, El Poder del Pueblo, Una Lucha Colectiva Por la Vida y el Medio Ambiente, The Power of the People, A Collective Struggle for Life and the Environment, and has published a number of uh, peer-reviewed journal articles and received uh, several awards from very important organizations, including multiple from the National Communication Association. Catalina, welcome to El Café Latinx.
1: Un placer, thank you so much, Pablo.
0: Our pleasure to have you uh, with us today. So, so Catalina, tell us, how did it all begin? How was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor?
1: I think there are so many origin stories uh, that we could share, so I'll I'll share one version (laughs) of the story today. In many ways, my journey to being, you know, una profesora was uh, started at Medill at Northwestern Uh, back in 2005. You know, I was you know, born and raised in the U.S. diaspora and um, in Montana and decided, you know, through my experiences in high school writing for the school newspaper and being an editor that a a journalism program would probably be a good fit for me. So I I had a, a wonderful time at Medill and I was a Spanish minor, so I have two very vivid memories of professors who I loved there. So Professor Michael Dees and Medill, who wrote for the Tribune, perhaps still does, uh, and then uh, Professora Nelida Zepeda, who was uh, in the Spanish, and I think at the time it was Spanish and Portuguese department, I think um, it might still be. And in particular, I just remember Professora Zepeda's class, and one of them was at 8 a.m., but it didn't matter because she was just so amazing. And uh, I found that as I began the work of being a journalist uh, in small market TV news that there was a lot of emphasis of quantity over quality. And I think if I had done investigative journalism, I, I would have enjoyed it a lot more. And I decided to, after concluding my, my bachelor's degree, to study news media uh, from a critical perspective. And that took me to the University of Montana. And I increasingly um, shifted some of my interest to you know, Latinx environmental communication studies. And while I was doing that, I had the opportunity to teach. And I realized how much I love teaching students and the co-learning process and just the, the great joy, the honor and the, the privilege and the responsibilities uh, that comes with that. And um, so through those experiences, I decided, well, you know, maybe I should um, continue on and get a PhD uh, so that hopefully I would be able to propose and teach my own courses in addition to what's already offered in a curriculum for a particular department. And so that's what brought me uh, to, to do the PhD and continue in the work that I'm doing now And my challenge, but also joy is in finding ways where my teaching, research and service and public advocacy can mutually inform each other and hopefully be synergistic in some way. So that continues to guide and motivate me. And it's really the students who inspire me daily with their amazing ideas and visions for you know, what world we might like to live in, um, as we consider, you know, our different talents and energies and views. So for me, uh, teaching is the the source of that joy. And then there there are so many other ways that I I try to bring those energies together.
0: Excellent. So, so then, let's continue on teaching. Um, You have developed very interesting classes on Latinx, Latina, Latino communication both for undergraduate and graduate students right um so what would you say have been the main sort of challenges um that you have faced in that space and um and and how did you address those challenges that would be number one number two um how do different kinds of students uh, appropriate the material, undergraduate, graduate students, students coming from different you know, backgrounds, positionalities, etc. So if you could share with us a little bit your experience teaching on this topic, right?
1: In terms of the challenges, two main ones come to mind. So the first one would be how to instruct a course on Latina, Latino, Latino, Latinx, comm studies that speaks to students from a variety of ethnic and racial backgrounds. One time that I taught this course, the course was primarily composed of white students because it was at a primarily white institution, uh, Willamette University, and I found that I had to offer a lot of supplemental uh, resources uh, for students who, who didn't have a good understanding of the complexities of Latina, Latino, Latinx cultures, and so, so, so that was very important. At the same time for the Latina OX identifying students. I also wanted to make sure that they had supplemental materials if they weren't communication studies majors, for example. So what it meant was some extra labor to try to really build a community that could appreciate the different perspectives uh, from which the the students were coming from. And um, with those efforts, uh, it was still clear that, you know the the, the Latino identifying students, really wanted that to be their space, that that safe space in this predominantly white institution. And so sometimes you would see how people would sit in the classroom, you know, based on, you know, ethnicity. And um, my effort was really to to try to, in a way where everyone could still feel comfortable, make sure that there was a sharing across those divides. So, so that was definitely a challenge. It, it required a, a lot of uh, thoughtfulness on my part, a lot of Uh, checking in with students from all backgrounds to see how they were experiencing the course and what I could better do to facilitate their experience so that was one challenge certainly thinking about people's backgrounds not only in terms of ethnicity and race uh, but also in terms of disciplinary backgrounds. so you know were these communication majors or were they film studies or were they over in the environmental sciences you know what what or the, those different backgrounds. So that was one item. The, the second item is how to teach a bridge course, so to both undergraduate and graduate students, and to have that material be sufficiently challenging for the graduate students, uh, but also not too rigorous for the undergrads and to you know risk discouraging them and not uh, feeling like they could contribute or do well in the course. So it also requires you know, some extra labor on the part of a faculty member, but it's, it's well worth it. And one of the, the beautiful things that I saw happening were efforts by graduate students to mentor undergraduate students to share their experiences, both academically and personally, you know, based on the, the most important lived experiences that they had gathered, you know, in the education system and also beyond just in, in trying to, to navigate life. Um, So that mentorship role was wonderful uh, to see a lot of students embracing, and then also undergraduate students, you know, occasionally wanting to see what graduate student additional assignments were so that they could push themselves so there's all kinds of surprises that can come uh, with those different interactions and trying to cultivate this broad sense of belonging across different levels in the university so those were you know some of the challenges that also taught me a lot, and that I, I hope have made me a better instructor as I've brought those lessons to the other spaces uh, where I where I teach. And then just in terms of how students were approaching the material, I, I think it. You know, was very important during those experiences and i think it will continue to be you know to check in with students with how they're experiencing the material and to really create spaces where students can present um, on their different specialties so it could be drawing on their lived experiences their testimonials it could be blending theory and practice to try to present on something so I often would create spaces where students could present, You know, every time we had a class time, different groups, small groups uh, present for the class on a particular topic they cared about. Maybe they found uh, a video online that was brief that spoke to you know, controversies with Latina, Latino, Latinx, Latine, <laughs> uh, or maybe um, it was about um, an issue that had appeared in the, the local paper that their parents were concerned about that they had heard and they wanted to bring it into a space that was really centering the lives and cultures of Latinx peoples. So that was a way that regardless of of what maybe the main assignments were, which I'm always happy to adapt based on the realities in the class, uh, it was a way to bring in student perspectives, class member perspectives on a regular basis, uh, where then we could have what felt to be A more authentic conversation where their interest with multimedia or digital media or with their lived experiences or with what they were learning. You know, in their political science class, you know, and and how that could relate to what we were talking about where those different ideas could have a space instead of me just using. My own narrow perspective to tailor everything that we talked about and you know produce projects on so those were a couple of my reflections in terms of how students approach the material.
0: Excellent, thank you very much. Very interesting. So if, if I may continue on this, you know, I, I, I will disclose you know, for our listeners that I have had access to the syllabi of these classes. So I one one um, so there are two classes at two different universities. But one issue that, that you haven't addressed, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts, has to do with the nature of the pandemic, because it, it appears to me, if I'm right that uh, the two syllabi in one case um, one was taught before the pandemic started in spring 2019 in the other was taught in 2021 right uh once the pandemic was in full swing and in, in addition to all the general considerations of teaching any class during the pandemic um a class on latinx latina latino latine uh type issues um has an additional layer of salience, given that uh, the pandemic has hit particularly hard, the community, right, Um, in a number of ways, and in in part it has amplified pre-existing inequalities, right? So, what's your uh, experience teaching before and during the pandemic, this kind of content? Did that come about in classroom discussions, in particular during the pandemic, et cetera?
1: Yeah, I think there are at least two considerations with this. So one is what content to bring into the space for our conversations that has to respond to the pandemic and its disproportionate impacts and thinking about racialization and how white supremacy and, you know, economic privilege, um, you know, and injustice functions. So just thinking about how we might use uh, the current events, uh, the realities to shape our conversations and then also how I engage students as full humans and some of the, the adaptations that had to be made, you know when you have students who are caregiving for different family members. Um, because of COVID or other reasons, and as you're saying the disproportionate impacts or students who work multiple jobs and coursework just understandably is not a priority, so how to support those students more fully and to scale back uh, material, if needed, Uh, if there was a topic that seemed to generate a lot of interest from students to delve more fully into that. Uh, So for example, in thinking about Colorado, there were the the many deaths from, you know, one of the the meatpacking factories in Greeley, which primarily, uh, you know, Latino individuals um, who died. And so, so thinking about you know, those key events and those, you know, disproportionate impacts. Uh, so it's really um, you know, th- those those two pieces. So supporting students fully, but then also what do we talk about? How do we talk about it? How does that shape, you know, the directions of the course and students' interests? Um, so for me, those were the, the two pieces. And you're right that in 2019, it was a course that was delivered in person face-to-face. And then we had the online version um, for COVID. Times and it was also at a different university, uh, and so uh, those were were different environments too. In that, uh, primarily in the online course, I had Latina, Latino, Latinx identifying students um, who were talking about their lived experiences, generally in the Denver area, um, and it was very important to create a space where students felt comfortable sharing, and, and that can be difficult to navigate uh, in an online space. It can bring perhaps some comfortability for for those who prefer that type of communication, but it's very different than an in-person
0: kind of interaction.
1: And so for me, it was important to try to integrate different uh, platforms or different um, modes of communication. So uh, we used um, Flipgrid for several of our discussions to try to encourage kind of a, a more intimate a type of interaction where we could uh, see each other in the comments and have students respond to each other, because this was an asynchronous course. So it was completely online. There was not a set time for conversation. You know, students had to carve out time uh, on their own. So that creates, you know, both challenges and possibilities uh, in terms of instruction and how class members want to interact with each other. Um, So those are just a couple of reflections. Uh, You know, It would be I think, interesting and important to do some type of reflective writing on, you know, what this process has been like at different institutions, pre-COVID and during COVID, and what that means for next communication studies, instructors and students, and, you know, what are we becoming together and learning about these really important histories, presence and uh, features.
0: Excellent. And then if I may flip the conversation and, Ask you to go back in time now that you're reflecting on you're reflecting on your experience as an instructor. Um you talked about being in Montana and deciding that you wanted to become a professor and you went for PhD, but how was your experience in the classroom uh, during your doctoral education? And in general, how was um you know uh that part of your scholarly journey for you?
1: Yeah, I think my own experiences have helped me to identify more with students of color in in a lot of ways. I am white passing. And I often think about some of my experiences where I felt othered um, or like I didn't belong uh, and how that shapes and informs my interactions with students today. So, you know, growing up in Montana, there were not many people with my identities. Um, you know, I'm, I'm certain we were the only family on the block that spoke Spanish, uh, you know, in our home, you know, we were a predominantly English speaking households, but, you know, if you were to listen to an occasional conversation outside, you know, you can bet that our home was the only one where my dad was, you know, using Spanish. So, uh, I think about that. So the importance of, uh, multilingualism and how, um, that has shaped, how I interact with students and also, you know, my research and, and different interests and how to create these spaces of belonging uh, for everyone um, and try to resist that, you know, English monolingualism. Um, I also recall, you know, as a as a grad student, you know, being expected and as an undergrad and before that, um, you know, being called to represent a particular community. You know, I know that this is very common for, for those of us who, have an identity that gets othered or gets marked as, you know, somehow different or exoticized or somehow we have to be the authority and carry responsibility for for a whole set of people. So I know this is a recurring problem that my students experience. So it's, um, you know, Black, Indigenous and other students of color. Um, So that's definitely, you know, a shared experience, that you know, I I listen very carefully to and, and try to To work with students so that they can create their spaces of belonging. Uh, I remember very vividly in a biology class when I was uh, in high school, we were all asked to bring in baby photos. Um, And so I remember the professor, the the teacher, you know, projected all the images up on the screen and he said, Oh, well, you know, we can't tell them anybody really is except for Catalina, it's obvious, you know, and I, um, you know, I have larger eyes and, you know, I have dark hair. There there are ways that I did look different uh, in some ways from my my classmates. And at the time, I just thought, oh, I shouldn't have brought in a baby picture that maybe looks so much like me or something. And I've learned (laughs) since then that no, you know, that was a racist statement. And, you know, it was ethnically othering me. So it's, it's those experiences where I'm still trying to piece together, (laughs) um, you know, what has happened educationally, and I I would never want to create spaces where students had a similar experience, where they felt like they didn't belong, or where they felt like, you know, the space wasn't designed for them. The, the higher ed system and education system generally in this country, of course, was not designed for all of us. So I know, you know, like the, with the next digital media project, you know, and, and so many other initiatives and centers are, are trying to do work where we can have these important spaces of belonging. And so it's so wonderful that you're creating these different archives so that we can share our stories uh, and so that you know, all students, you know, who are you know, developing in their learning and their careers uh, can feel like they have a space and perhaps a shared story, even though there are important differences among us. So those are um, a couple of my, my earlier reflections that helped to shape uh the teacher who I'm who I'm trying to be still today.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much, and thank you for your kind comments. Um and and when you went on the market, right, uh, the first time, because you have now secured two different faculty positions, um, how, how was that experience for you?
1: I was very scared. <laughs> I I really was terrified that after all the work in PhD school that I, I wouldn't find the tenure track job that I they had worked so hard to, to try to hopefully secure. I I found grad school to be very difficult for a lot of reasons particularly you know I was a rhetorical studies student and that <laughs> is an area of study that's not uh, known for for nurturing and encouraging people like me or people who had research interests like mine. So it was was a very difficult um, time in in a lot of ways, and I was so glad I had Latino studies as a minor. (laughs) Working with the the wonderful historians in Latino studies was was just so important. Um, But as I was having those difficult experiences, I also felt tremendous pressure to publish. So, you know, as a PhD student, you know, as soon as I had finished with my coursework or as I was doing my coursework, I was publishing on the side, trying to get journal articles submitted. Um, and it didn't leave a lot of time for breathing uh, and room to, to honestly enjoy life. Uh, it was quite suffocating. So even with those publications. I was still very concerned that i uh, would not have interest uh, from different folks on the job market because i had heard stories of you know 120 or more people applying to a particular position um so i worked through uh those fears and i applied because it was well you either apply or you you know scare yourself out of it and don't and then do something else um and so i was surprised uh, that there were people who were interested in talking to me, you know, and, and having me as a semi-finalist and a finalist for different roles. And one of the greatest joys of my job is working with grad students who are on the job market, or thinking about what that could look like for them, and just sharing my own experiences like these are the types of questions the committee is going to ask you. Or, you know, these are the the feelings that I thought and, you know, how are you feeling about it? And, you know, if the student, and generally usually they are, is is feeling some of those hesitancies, those fears like me, just trying to share that, you know, those those voices. Yes, they're there, but these individuals, these students are amazing and they have done tremendous good work and any program would be so lucky to have them. So it's... um, often, uh, similar to that teaching question you had in terms of like what I've learned earlier on, you know, based on my own experiences and how that shapes how I interact with students. I think it's similar with the job market too, uh, as I interact with grad students and and other folks who have finished their studies and are are looking for employment in higher ed.
0: Okay, and the transition from PhD to a faculty member. Um, what was your experience and, and and what sort of advice would you give to uh, students and young colleagues who are going through the same?
1: Yeah, it was both a, a very welcome change uh, because I had all kinds of different ways to dedicate my energies, it didn't feel like I was only reading or only writing papers, I was able to have these you know, great conversations um, with students regularly uh, and to do advising and mentoring. That was all very wonderful. Uh, what was very difficult though, was um, preparing for new courses. You know, that—that that is, you know, as you know, uh, it is exhausting to put a new course together that's worthwhile and that's relevant and that, um, you know, includes, you know, literature that's been uh, recently published, but also maybe some, you know, more historical pieces that have, you know, stood the test of time. I think about the wonderful work of um Professora, you know, Lisa e. Flores, who I know will be in the seminar later this winter. You know, and her piece about, you know, uh creating a homeland, it's, you know, draws on Anzaldúa. It's very much a feminist uh, Latina piece. I mean, and that's been just so amazing for me. And it's Really has uh, stood the test of time. Like so many students, still today say how remarkable that piece is. So you know that was um, you know certainly something that I that I thought about. So how to how to have a reading list or how to have texts broadly understood that students could engage with and find the relevance in, and that I wanted to challenge them with. Uh, And then thinking about service learning and experiential learning, you know that can be to do that ethically. Uh, can be very challenging so that, you know, everyone involved, including especially the community partners benefit, um, I really hit the ground running. And um, that's actually some of the advice that I would give for folks to pace themselves. Uh, One of my wonderful colleagues, Vincent Infom, at Willamette told me that it's, you know, it's a marathon, so you you, got to pace yourself. And I didn't do that my first year. I applied to grants. I created La Chispa, which was an environmental justice coalition with majors, you know, from across the university at Willamette. And it was amazing. We were doing really cool work that was bringing together Latinx communication studies and environmental justice and um, other issues like with sociology. But it was exhausting because I tend to be a very hands on mentor if that's what students would like. So that would be my advice to really just uh, pace yourself and to really ask yourself. So check in with your heart. What is it that you most want to do in the academy? So Do you first and foremost want to be known for your research? Do you want to be known for being an amazing teacher and mentor? And then to really dedicate yourself um, in those areas. and it can be very difficult because sometimes those demands feel like they're very competing or a particular university or program will value research over teaching and mentorship or it could be flipped you know if ones at like a, a liberal arts college or university and so um pace yourself and also just check in with your heart uh, to stay true to yourself to do the work that you love and to be doing that with people uh, who you care about
0: excellent advice uh catalina and and it's a perfect segue to another uh, topic that I wanted to ask you about because of your career so far. Um, you have published um, in very different genres, right? I mean, you, your work ranges from you know top-notch scholarly monograph to a children's book. And um, you have also been a documentary filmmaker, right, and contributed to a um a film that has been, you know, shown in festivals, etc. So, um, how is it to navigate different genres and different media, and and what do you, how do you engage different publics, and how do you decide really, you know, how to allocate your time? It's much easier when you're just one thing, right? I mean, just write monographs or articles or. Uh, Public scholar, right? But it's more complicated when you try to, I imagine, when you try to do all these things, right? So so uh, h- how do you navigate all of that?
1: It is um very difficult some days. Uh, but I, I think it's worth the the risks uh and the challenges, how to address these different publics, as you're saying, um, these different audiences. And I think I got to a point in my career where I realized I'd written a lot of academic articles for academic audiences, um, many of which weren't very accessible. <laughs> um, you know, I had also written um, this book with the top university of university press, and I just wanted to to be in the world a little bit differently. And I think part of this is my journalism training from Northwestern, but the importance of storytelling and gathering different stories and communicating them with different audiences. I felt that I had a good enough record of publishing for these scholarly venues uh, that I could branch out and uh, do some work that was of, of interest to me in different ways. And part of this is finding inspiration from colleagues who have also done this and feeling that they have broken uh, from these very narrow lanes sometimes of how we as scholars are supposed to do work in the world uh, and to see how they're doing public scholarship in ways that were exciting to me. And that I felt like maybe I could do in my own way a little bit differently, uh, but still do. So I have, found a lot of inspiration in the work of uh, Dr. Megan Parker Brooks, who's done a wonderful set of projects with the, the wonderful civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer um, and you know other, other similar folks who, who are doing this public facing work, and not only for their own scholarship, but also with their students. So how can a traditional research paper in a class also potentially become a public facing website in some way? So. For me, it's really been about taking some risks and seeing how it goes. I will say that the children's book, La Justicia Ambiental es para Ti y Para Mi, or Environmental Justice is for You and Me, that that book has received um, great interest and attention more than certainly my other scholarship. (laughs) So, um, you know, that's that's an important lesson, I think, for me to learn and perhaps might be inspiring uh, for others to think about. These various ways that we can communicate. Um, a, a couple of cautions, I guess, with this would be, you know, if one is in, in a tenure track position and there are these very rigid review tenure and promotion expectations. One doesn't really have the flexibility to do what I've done uh, if they haven't had the same publishing experiences. And so I would say, think about your timing and think about what's most pressing for you to secure the position that you would most like to have in the academy. And then once you do that, then, you know, push the boundaries, um, be in the world the way you would most like to be. Um, That doesn't mean that, you know, you can't try to do it earlier. I just think that because we have a limited reserve of energy and time uh, for for all of us that there are some risks that have to be calculated there. So think about timing um, and and don't give up on those ideas. Um, Another idea could be to, to do them more collaboratively. So you're sharing this work. So you can still have those academic articles and those monographs with top university presses. And if you're collaborating with folks who also want to do this alternative project that's equally valuable, just different, You know, is that a way that you could do the both and, where you can have these shared experiences simultaneously? So those are just a couple of reflections. I'm still thinking about this because I'm at a point in my research where I, I could take some different directions and I don't yet know where I'm going. So I am with all those who are contemplating these particular uh, you know, entry points or, or takeoff points and junctures, and just the the excitement of that, but also the uncertainty.
0: Excellent. And if I may continue on that, and 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 you know, bring back something that you mentioned uh, as important, which is the the issue of monolinguism. Right. Um, it's only that you have published different genres uh, of texts, and you have and use different media, right? Film and uh, text, but you have also published across languages. How's that experience? It's a topic that personally fascinates me as as I'm not a native English speaker and I have published in in multiple languages as well. So um, how was that experience for you and how has the reception been of that kind of work?
1: Yeah, for another cafecito, Pavel. I'd love to hear your experiences with this too, because I, I only have, you know, my my point of view here. This is also very difficult, you know, there is just such a high value, you know, in the United States placed on English. Uh, and, and I think that it also depends on discipline and the different fields that we're in, because I was Wonderfully surprised, delighted when I took a, a history class from the Latin American Studies uh, department at IU where you know, people would change in their writing from English to Spanish, no apologies, no translations. <laughs> it was wonderful. And then I'd find myself back in rhetorical studies where I was having to translate everything. It was just the expectation that that was done. And as you know, uh, it is so much extra work to to always be doing that. So much, uh, so much energy and I think, until more of us are in positions of leadership and changing the assumptions that guide, you know, how work gets evaluated and assessed or what, how work can be presented, um, you know, until more of us who've had these different experiences uh, can shift things, um, you know, people like us are going to continue to confront some, some real obstacles and a lot of added energy, you know, to try to please, you know, those, those monolingual English speakers or people who just think that the language of the academy should be English and everything else is just secondary or lower on this hierarchy. So, generally, my experiences have been that um, my use of different languages, so with Spanish, um, is an important way of pushing the discipline. Uh, but there's still an added responsibility that I always be translating and that, that Spanish still be secondary. So I'm thinking of like in the quarterly journal of speech, uh, Stacy Sowers who has Chilean roots um, and others in other spaces, including in my own work have really pushed against this English monolingualism. So increasingly there's a recognition that it's really important to be a multilingual space. Um, and I will say as a grad student, Um, I received regular messages from many sources that Spanish language didn't really matter and thus Latina, Latino, Latinx culture, you know, didn't really matter. Um, And it can be in subtle ways uh, or it can be in very obvious ways. It can be conversations in a person's office. It can be comments during seminar. It can be comments on a paper. Uh, and so for me, I'm always encouraging students um, to, to be aware of the different linguistic capacities I have and to push um, if they feel comfortable, you know, to, to communicate in different languages um, in the work that they do. So um, that's just something I would know. And in, ter- in terms of reception as well, it has been amazing on the one hand to work with the Editora Educación en Mar Gente, this independent Puerto Rican press that's, you um, that does a lot of, of great work that published the children's book, for example, um, and to just be opened up to these other communities that my formal education in the United States never encouraged me to explore those alternative publication venues. And as I think about review tenure and promotion at my current university, if I was publishing things only in Spanish, it wouldn't be valued, it wouldn't be you know marked as relevant. Um and, and that's really difficult. So I guess one of my my jobs I view in the world, the work that I would like to do in the world is to show that communication in other languages, you know, literally, and also more figuratively, uh, matters a great deal. Uh, it's how we can make the academy, a place where everyone can belong and feels like they have a space and also speaks directly to the ongoing much needed transformations that are fighting against white supremacy, anti-Black racism, English monolingualism, uh, and, and so much more. So it's definitely a topic that's uh, near and dear uh, to my heart and, you know, is based on our our lived experiences and, and struggling with that. My dad has always instructed me because he was, you know, a instructor of ethnic studies in spanish for his career and has been really important for for inspiring a lot of my work he always told me never publish in spanish no one will read it no one will recognize it um and in terms of helping me to survive and fit within a system that is very narrow and very oppressive to to other ways of being in the world um that's advice that yes um, carries some truth to it but i know that so many of us are trying to create, uh, an alternative present and future. So then I think the more that we can break away from that and show that wonderful scholarship can be done in different languages, scholarship that's relevant, that's important, that contributes to the discipline and also pushes and tries to transform it. Uh, the more we can do that, um, hopefully, the more we'll see these larger structural changes and what's valued and who's valued. Excellent.
0: Thank you. And then you, you have alluded to a couple of uh, wishes that you would have, uh, or that you have actually about how, you know, uh, the discipline and the institutional structures uh, that subtend the discipline um, uh, behave. So more broadly, if you had magical powers and could be granted one wish about how you would like the field of communications and communication media studies to change, what would you wish for? Any of these wishes that you have already expressed or a different one?
1: Yeah, I was going to say that my wish would be to you know have, have multiple wishes, but you, you make clear that you can, <laughs>
0: you can, you're you're <laughs> granted that.
1: There's only one. Um yeah, I think that. In addition to encouraging multilingual spaces, and in addition to encouraging all types of projects, you know, to ensure that they are valued and appreciated and recognized as relevant. Um, In addition to that, I think I would would like to see, you know, more uh, institutional support of projects that engage different community members who do want to work with people from academic backgrounds. So like activist, teacher, scholars, or you know folks who identify as public intellectuals or these public academics. I'd like to see a lot more um, institutional support for that and not just this tendency to like celebrate civic engagement, but not grapple with the ethics of that and the extra labor involved. And also for those of us who have ties to particular communities, To use us to to make an institution look good, um, because that's also exhausting to experience uh, as on the part of the the researcher or the teacher um, or whoever else we might identify in in the work that we do. So, to really um, learn and learn from and listen to those of us who are trying to do this work and um, really take seriously the different obstacles and how we might be used. To look good on a brochure or on a website um but really what's behind you know supporting us and how our particular communities being centered or is it just the academic agenda that's getting pushed forward because there are a lot of serious tensions in doing this work uh, and it can be very exhausting and, and certainly brings to the foreground many many ethical issues that um are very tied to you know social justice um and you know other related struggles and so it's communication studies and media studies is, is grappling with these different structures and systems that don't encourage belonging for all of us. And I think that's very important to think about support, you know, and what are the assumptions and, and the work that we do and how are we being used or how are we actually uh, being supported and encouraged uh, in doing the work that we wanna do in the world.
0: All right. Thank you very much, Catalina. Thank you for sharing your experience and your thoughts with us. Uh, Thanks uh, to members of the audience for uh, staying with us to the end. And I invite everybody to join us for the next episode of El Café Latinx. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcicki, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi.